to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Tim Peterson, Senior Media Editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, Senior Reporter at Digiday. Kaylee, we're doing something a little bit different with this week's episode. We figured with everything that's been going on for the past year and a half, and um, even just the things that have been going on this summer, feels like a good time to do something of a check-in on what is going on with the industries that we cover, because it feels like we are at this kind of delta point pun very much intended, unfortunately, um, where the Delta variant seems to be throwing a lot of things in flux. It, It felt like we were on this road back to some semblance of normalcy, whether it's the new normal or you know, back to the pre-pandemic normal. Um, but over the past month in particular, it feels like all of that's not necessarily out the window, but not nearly as steady as it was. Are you getting that sense? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, to quickly reference last week's episode where I talked with Warren Webster of Atlas Obscura, uh, the travel publisher that also has a tourism business attached to it. Um, I, we were talking about the Delta variant, and he still had a degree of optimism about um, the return of travel and then also maintaining advertising revenue. Um, so, Yes, I mean, from just knowing what's going on with the media industry, I'm to a degree sensing some hesitancy, especially around events and returning to an office. But I think also some people are still holding on to the fact that, you know, 2021 and especially 2022 was supposed to be this grand return to what business was like in 2019. So, you know the industry or the the business that I would almost expect to have a higher degree of like a worried reaction to these variants isn't the one that had such reaction. So I don't know. It, it's it's hard to say for sure at this point because I think people are still very optimistic about the vaccinations kind of not having such or I guess limiting the impact that the variants would have on life. Um, with this kind of like... No, but it, it seems like we are, like there is some solace in that, okay, things like events, returning to the office, those seem like they are have the potential to be pushed. There was, you know, someone I was talking to this morning who was saying that their company probably isn't going to return until January at this point. They had originally been looking at September. Someone I was talking to yesterday was saying they have a betting pool on their company on when they're they're going to return and that they're looking at November, but the smart money there is on January as well. But then you have kind of the other lens on it where, okay, well, sure, those things may have to be delayed a bit, but then it's just kind of continuing the normalcy of the past year and a half where the advertising business has obviously been able to survive. Um, Subscriptions have been able to survive. Traffic has held somewhat steady. Um, Mm. There's been a change there, but like that, even if we are at another inflection point, the fallout won't be as bad as, you know, April and May of last year. I feel like people know what to expect and know how bad it could get, but also remember that by, I wouldn't say July, there was a positive kind of swoop back upwards in their business. So I don't know. I think, yes, we're going to see kind of a, 
I don't want to say return to um, 2020 necessarily or, tw- or March 2020, um, but I think the in-person events businesses and the return to office is going to feel more similar to maybe March 2020 because of these variants now versus the other sides of the business. I think that's kind of the the direction I'm seeing it in and, and what people are saying, what I'm kind of hearing. But, you know, it's hard to say as well because you, places in the world that had issues with, for instance, like supply chain and manufacturing, that had implications on, um, uh, you know, retailers, Amazon, which then trickled down to have you know, impacts on commerce businesses for publishers, right? So it's hard to say if, you know, places like India, which had been struggling for so long with COVID and was still very hard hit, even when the U.S. was getting vaccinations and is still, you know, struggling. It's hard to say if those types of manufacturing facilities, if they continue to be struggled or, um, you know, are, are continuously hit, is that going to impact U.S.-based Um, commerce businesses again. So I think it's, there's still a lot of unknowns and I'm, I'm curious to see if maybe those sides of the businesses will have any kind of um, regressions. Yeah. And it seems like if there is something of a slowing down of the return to normalcy, that it could be helpful in that it basically checks what are the changes from the past year and a half and what are the changes that are going to stick around. Um, like we're, you know, right now in earnings season where a lot of companies are putting out their second quarter earnings reports and you've had, you know, Netflix and Roku, um, you know, Netflix reported they saw, they actually lost subscribers in the U.S. and Canada in the second quarter. Roku saw a drop in the amount of time people spent streaming video on its connected TV platform. And that seems to align with People are getting vaccinated. Anyone who hasn't been vaccinated, please do if you can. Um, And being able to travel and kind of return to life again. But even with that, it's not like, oh, people are not are going to stop watching TV. It's, you know, in the same way that there was a streaming spike in spring of 2020, that it also seems like there's the inversion this year. Um, And then like you were saying, when it comes to commerce or even advertising, like, um, CPG advertisers, CPG brands are obviously having some supply chain issues. Auto is having supply chain issues. And so that's going to have an effect on advertising as well. And so it's it's like, okay, if this, is, this period gets a bit prolonged, maybe that's helpful because if it swings too quickly the other way, how reliable would that be? Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like auto and CPG were two categories that kind of stuck with advertising budgets last year. Um, I know, again, referencing last week's episode, that's what um, Warren called out as as being a couple categories for them that really helped their business. So yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to kind of see how those things shake out due to just pure manufacturing, um, you know, issues that could come into place. Um, I'm curious if talking about more of the like operational side of things, the Delta delay in like a return to office and also return to in-person events. I'm curious what you've been kind of hearing about um, like businesses reacting to that. Um, I know that there's 
been a few publishers that have pushed back their the return dates into offices. Um, referencing uh, Sarah Guglione's article that she wrote um, last week about like I guess Viacom's delayed until October 18th at the earliest. Politico um, said that they are putting their office reopening on pause. Um, the Washington Post said that they're delaying from September 13th return to October 18th um, and that everyone has to be vaccinated if they want to keep their jobs. Um, yeah, like the New York Times is also indefinite now in their return. Like there's there's these very like Maybe they're like a month long delays, but I would wouldn't be surprised if they were pushed to maybe January. Generally speaking, um, what do you think that will? I mean, do you think that will have an impact on businesses at all? I personally think that you know everyone's been in in this remote working situation, so they'll probably be okay. But there are definitely implications on events businesses, which I know a lot of publishers were expecting to have back um, by now, or not by now, but by fall. Like, what are you kind of hearing about that end of the business? Yeah, I mean, on the event side, I think hopefully those publishers had contingencies in place and were more looking at any 2021 in-person events and corresponding revenue as basically bonus money as opposed to necessary revenue in order for them to be able to... Um, turn a profit this year, or at least like you know, come out even. Um, what I'm more interested in on the like office side of things is less what people remaining remote is gonna do for companies and more what the eventual return is gonna do to companies because I mean, so much has been made about how productive everyone has been since you know going remote and how helpful that can be. And also like, honestly how profitable it has been for companies there have been a number of executives i'm sure you've you know been talking to folks about this too who have said like it really helped us to get through the pandemic to be able to give up our office space to not have the expenses of you know people traveling for sales meetings and whatever else um and so like as people go back into the office and companies take on those the expenses of having an office again and as people are able to you know sit around the water cooler, go out for lunch meetings, go out for coffee breaks and things of that nature. Like just what's that going to do from a productivity perspective? And also like, is that going to be something where we see employees push back against office returns because of pro like use productivity as a reason why they shouldn't have to return to the office? Um, use even, you know, I could see unions using profitability as an argument for why companies shouldn't be forcing employees back into an office. Um, but obviously a lot of that may get pushed until January, but at the same time, some of that conversation or pushback may happen sooner than that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm curious about once people do go back to an office, like they're, I think going to be way more likely to sign off at six at the latest and and walk out and not touch their laptops again. Um, so from that end of productivity, it, it could potentially behoove publishers and, and other companies to 
not send their employees or force them back into an office just because they might be working more hours if they don't have a commute. Um, I know personally I've been doing that and I'm, I know I'm not the only one um, out of, you know, my colleagues and friends. So that's just an interesting thing to, I think, you know, think about and keep an eye on. Um, in terms of, yeah, I, I'm curious if like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of publishers, and again, I'm speaking about publishers mainly because that's my beat, but companies in general, I feel like walked away from 2020 actually in a better position than they expected. So maybe they have a little bit more funds to to play around with when it comes to an office space again. And yeah, I'm curious if you know they're going to go back to paying rent and realizing that you know, next year isn't as profitable as this year was because they do have that big overhead cost again. And I know a lot of publishers are starting to hire um, again and grow their teams. And while they might not all be, you know, in an office setting and they might be hiring more remote workers, those are, again, costs that they have to consider too. So it'll be interesting to see if like maybe these costs add up to a point where next year, you know, they're looking at, not as much growth as maybe they were expecting just because you have to factor in these costs again. And I feel like they're going to be higher than they were before the pandemic. Right. But, and then what does that do to pay equity, you know, mm -hmm. for example, because, you know, that's another thing. So much was made around diversity, equity, inclusion last year. Um, and, and there has been some progress made. I don't want to make out like there hasn't been any progress whatsoever, but there definitely hasn't been sufficient progress. And so when you get these additional financial pressures on companies, how is that going to translate into their willingness to actually be more equitable with their employees moving forward? Mm -hmm. um, and then and then also like with going back into the office, what impacts that going to have on the diversity in their hiring? You know, there have been executives I've talked to this year who are just saying having, you know, a remote workforce is great for helping with diversity and hiring because then it opens us up to people who can be based anywhere or who may not be able to live in a big city because they have all these personal costs that just make it not work for them. And so so I'm really interested to like stay on top of all of that and just to see to what extent companies are actually following through on their D&I pledges. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think we should talk about like traffic and views, right? Because you mentioned that Netflix um, had a dip in subscriptions, which is not overly surprising to me. I think that there's kind of this like running joke on the internet of having watched everything on Netflix, like finishing like the season finale of Netflix, right? Is, you know, <laughs> something that a lot of people feel like they've met because for the longest time, that's all you could do is consume content. So I think that it doesn't surprise me from the fact that people are likely just sick of sitting on their couch. And the summer was a great time to, at the very least, go stretch your legs and, you know, enjoy a, a drink outside. But um, I don't know. I think in general, there's a few things impacting subscription revenue for both, you know, the streaming side of, of media, but also um, publishers, right? Like, I think it got to the point where, Obviously, with the election being over, people are less likely to subscribe to maybe news publishers because they're not following that information as as quickly, right? Like the reverse Trump bump, um, the 
I guess, Biden lull. I'm not sure what we're calling it. But, you know, those those things can be factors in this. Um, also, the fact that, you know, at a certain point, people are realizing that, like, they're spending maybe more on their subscription services in total than they were on cable at one point. Like, there's, I don't know, I think there's a lot of factors kind of coming into play here. But then, like, you look at traffic to to some media sites. Um, you know, our colleague Max wrote a, a great story the other day about, um, you know, post-COVID uh, traffic declines that are setting some publishers back two years, right? Like, it's, it's there are implications on traffic, too, and whether or not that's going to impact subscription revenue entirely is, I think, still yet to be seen. But, you know, you can't deny that, like, people aren't spending much as much time online, aren't spending as much time on their couch um, or, you know, keeping their eyes glued to to news sites. Um, what do you think? No, I mean, I think retention is like the big topic on the subscription side of things this year, like acquisition. A- acquisition is always going to be part of it, but like acquisition was so huge for a lot of publishers, streaming services in 2020 that this year it's a question of how do you hang on to all of those people, especially from news publisher perspective, like you said, if the news cycle, I mean, it's great that the news cycle isn't as hectic as it was last year, but at the same time, that reinforced the value of having a subscription to publishers. I want to read The Atlantic because I want to read their reporting on the pandemic and just make sure I'm as informed as possible. I want to make sure I'm subscribed to all these, you know, a local newspaper because I want to know what's going on in my area. Um, so on and so forth. But this year, there isn't as much of that urgency in a way around the news. And so it's been interesting seeing a lot of publishers turn to their email newsletters as in part a subscriber acquisition tool, but really it seems to be a subscriber retention tool. We've seen this with the information. Sarah Guaglione um, just had a story about how Quartz is really pivoting its subscription program around email because I think the stat she had was like something like 75% of Quartz's subscribers are getting their content via email newsletters. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's going to be, and it also, I don't know, do you get a sense that there's like a potential subscription fatigue when it comes to publishers in the same way that we've talked about subscription fatigue on the streaming side of things? I do. I think it I think it factors into the fact like subscribers aren't going to differentiate if they're paying for a media like a a news website or if they're paying for Netflix. It's still maybe leaving their bank account every every month right and that adds up there are apps that track all that you're spending on subscriptions and people are looking at that number and they're like dear god what have i been doing um i think to the consumer it doesn't so much matter what the service is they're just deciding at this point what's the top priority for them that they want to keep spending money on maybe you know they bought a Peloton bike over the pandemic and that, I don't know what it is, maybe like $14.99 or $34.99, whatever it is that they're paying a month for that, you know, outweighs the fact that, you know, they're not, they're not reading, as you mentioned, like the Atlantic every, every week now for pandemic updates or whatever it is, or election coverage. It's like, I think they're just looking at the the vast total of their subscriptions that they're paying for and they're realizing, you know, it's too much. Um, 
So yeah, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like, as you mentioned, retention is the like big focus. And I know that's going to be something that we're covering more in our, in our reporting as well. Um, different tactics for, for maintaining, you know, that subscriber money. Yeah. And I mean, retention is also like important from an advertising perspective when we're talking about the cookie of it all and identity. Um, there was a publishing executive I was talking to this week and they were just like, you know, our cookie strategy isn't really pinned on subscribers, but because it's more pinned around contextual data, that's going to, it's going to take them two years to get all of that, all of the ducks in a row because they need to develop machine learning algorithms and like all of this infrastructure and expertise and just product development that's going to be required for that. Whereas if you have a database of subscribers, then you're already ahead of the game in, in a large part. And, and I guess like if you're losing someone as a subscriber, you're not necessarily losing their email address. Like you can still, you still have that first party data, mm -hmm. but it's going to be really interesting just to see what the identity picture is going to look like and plans look like moving forward now that there has been this, I think, two year reprieve from Chrome. Cause it's like <laughs> the industry doesn't have a great reputation for getting for not procrastinating on things like this or like CCPA. And and while they still will have like first party data of an email address from someone who's dropped off as a subscriber, I mean, at the end of the day, you are losing those eyeballs. Like theoretically they were they were coming to you a couple times a week. They were at least maybe opening one out of every few emails from you. Like you're not getting that anymore. And and that will impact views eventually and and then trickle down to impacting, you know, ad revenue. Um, so there are, you know, serious implications for losing subscribers um on on both, you know, ends of the business. Um one thing I'm curious though is like how this like identity picture in the industry kind of being um having to figure out the identity landscape and how then all of this connects with subscriptions and advertising. Um, to what extent, like then it also factors into this consolidation wave that we're seeing pop up again, mm -hmm. because it just feels like bigger is oftentimes better in media. Um, we've seen that plenty of times, um, but it feels like right now there are all these heightened reasons for companies to want to get bigger. It's, you know, we've seen it in the TV space where if you're, you know, someone like an NBC Universal or a Viacom CBS, it helps to, or Disney, it helps to have a lot of different channels because then you have more leverage when you're negotiating with Comcast or Charter for distribution. Um, if you're NBC Universal, it helps if Comcast owns you when you're negotiating <laughs> for distribution. But now we're seeing with BuzzFeed acquiring complex networks, um, Group Nine has their spec, BDG continues to be on its shopping spree. Like, all of these companies are getting bigger and that's gonna help them with dealing with a lot of these different things. Um, and especially a lot of these companies aren't fully in the subscription space, um, but we're seeing outside talk a lot about trying to bundle subscriptions and things of that nature. It seems like, okay, if you're a Buzzfeed or, I mean, Vox Media owns New York Magazine, but they haven't really done too much on the subscription side for the rest of Vox Media, kind of Vox Media pre-New York media. But it's going to help to have that expertise in place 
if they want to start doing a Vox Media Prime type setup. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like, I mean, of the of the acquisitions and mergers you just kind of laid out, you're right. Not not a lot of them seem to be focused on subscriptions as like the as the money maker or the idea of what could be a money maker. I feel like it's more tied into things like content licensing in the video space, absolutely. And also maybe commerce initiatives, right? Like BuzzFeed and Complex, for example, both of them have very well-defined commerce operations that honestly, like they have it, I think they're projecting that in 2024, that'll be 31% of BuzzFeed's revenue, um, like a over $300 million business. And I think because that is such a big part of the business. I could see them wanting to combine forces to further develop that and that being their reader revenue stream, right? Like what, I don't think a subscription business on top of that would really add much to to them, but you know, it is a, it is another way to diversify. It's just interesting. Like, I don't know. It's interesting why some publishers haven't gone the subscription route yet or the, um, membership route outside of, I guess, BuzzFeed does have their, you know, support our journalism track for BuzzFeed news. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like there's other kinds of wins when it comes to these mergers and acquisitions that are more so related on these other big trends around commerce and especially around, you know, video IP and, and licensing. Um, I think those are two very, very big areas um, that we're going to see further further grow in the next year, especially from these from these guys that are growing together. And, and you know, this week um, or this past week, rather, Trusted Media Brands bought Jukin Media, which is, to me, on paper, a very wild kind of acquisition because Jukin is fail army, um, very social, social um, video distribution focused OTT. Trusted Media Brands has Reader's Digest and Taste of Home and Family Handyman, which again, those audiences don't seem to have a lot of overlap. But the whole focus of that is, you know, really leaning into the video development for Trusted Media Brands and focusing a lot on like niche video content and user generated content. It's a very big 180, I feel like, from what they've been doing for decades, you know, ahead of that. So these mergers and acquisitions are interesting to follow because it seems to be very focused recently on that, like, video side of the business and, you know, brand franchising versus just getting more audiences, if that makes sense. And, and what's going to be interesting with, like, the publishers moving into TV and streaming is just how successful they're going to be at this point because i mean some publishers have been moving into that space for years at this point like vox media vice have been doing this for a really long time relatively speaking even the times has like quickly um built things up on the tv and streaming side of things but you're also now facing where amazon if they get approval to acquire MGM is going to join the likes of Disney, Netflix, and all of these other major entertainment companies that are producing content for themselves and therefore are less reliant on outside programming. That's not to say like a 
Netflix or Disney isn't going to buy a show from you know, BuzzFeed or whoever, but they're under less pressure to be buying those shows. Um, so how does the economics change there and to what extent can a publisher, does a publisher need to have its own connected TV app or streaming service? Um, cause it just feels like there are so many similarities with mobile apps where publishers tried to have mobile apps and for the most part, it didn't really work. And so they had to go, Facebook became that gateway to them and they became really reliant on Facebook. And it feels like there's a, it's not quite the same, but a similarity with like these free ad supported streaming TV services like Pluto TV, the Roku channel, uh, Samsung TV plus the thing working in publishers favor, there's just a lot of those streaming services. And so it's not exactly like the Facebook situation where it's basically just Facebook. Um, yeah. But we'll have to see because you know, there's, there's just walled gardens everywhere. And I think like yeah. a lot of consolidation is folks trying to find ways to create their own walled gardens in some respect. Yeah, it's interesting too because I'm curious. Like, I feel like the bigger streaming services or um, entertainment platforms like Netflix and Amazon and um, Hulu, like I feel like those ones would be the ones that publishers desire to work with the most. But to your point, as they have the ability to make their own content, they might be less interested in working with publishers unless it's like a very specifically interesting idea. Um, I'm I'm wondering, because then you go to, to like the Rokus and Pluto TVs, which are ad supported, is that as lucrative of a, you know, TV option for publishers as it was doing licensing deals. Like it feels like it becomes very self-reliant in growing um, views and, and, and gaining advertising on yet another platform, right? So I am curious if there will be any kind of like drop-off in publishers pursuing this route since it does feel very crowded at this point. And going back to our earlier conversation, you know, it People aren't subscribing to some of these platforms as much. Maybe there's less money or less interest in producing additional content. Like, it, I feel like it's this kind of like circle and it will be interesting to see if perhaps this kind of becomes a, a bubble that pops, you know, I mean, pivot to video. We already saw that kind of fail once. Granted, this isn't relying on one platform, but you never know. I'm just, I, it'll be interesting to follow. Yeah, it's that whole, you know, diversification uh, topic where like you were saying before on commerce well it really helps if you're going to do a brand licensing deal with some retailer for some publisher branded line of whatever products it helps you if you can also like work into that deal oh hey here's like an ad sales arrangement that we can do as part of it or if you're selling a show to a streaming service if you can say oh and hey we'll also run ads to promote your service on our different websites because you know we know there's you know a streaming war going on for subscribers or you know we can jointly sell ads if it's an ad supported service so <laughs> at least for everything that is changing and up in the air it seems like at least that is remaining pretty constant yeah 
So, so obviously a lot going on in the industry at the moment. There's only so much we can capture in a you know half hour conversation. But um, yeah, we just wanted to give you all a sense of you know the trends and topics that we're staying on top of at the moment and plan to be um, featuring in the conversations that we're having with guests throughout the end of the year. Yeah, and just calling out a lot of our coverage already on some of the impacts of the Delta variants and, um, you know, the updates to returning to office spaces. And, you know, we've done a lot of coverage in in both Digiday and um, our Future of Work verticals. So be sure to check that out on our website. Lots of stuff to take into our future interviews for the podcast as well um, that relate to these trends. So this has been a fun conversation, Tim. Absolutely. Thanks, Kayla. Thank you.